Greetings and welcome to this uh, episode of Conversations with the Code 9 Foundation. Uh, Mark here and I'm sitting here with uh, Police Veteran Ron Fenton. Uh, sitting in his backyard with the wind chimes and a little bit of gentle breeze and his nice little peaceful area which is um, suitably outstanding and very peaceful. Welcome Ron. Morning Mark, how are you? Good, well, good thanks mate. Actually. Yeah, afternoon. What are we? Yeah, it is afternoon. Um, Thanks for taking the uh, green to take some time to sit down with us. Um, your your story uh, is it's not only unique; it's it's highly unique, and we'll, we'll get into the reasons why later on. And um, just a, a fascinating, incredible story of resilience. And um, as we've been talking about for the last sort of forty minutes or so before we press record, just plenty of fun and yeah, some bad times, but the positivity and the um, the laughter that's come out of it has been. Been pretty good. Um, so let's go back. Dive one. You're a police veteran now, but at one stage you were a gadget, a brand new, spanking, off the shelf member of Victoria yeah, Police. Yep, absolutely. Full, full of uh, enthusiasm, uh, believing I could save the world. What what date was this? A, the first uh, of February, uh, 1990. Oh, sorry, nineteen seventy two. Seventy two. So that make you a cadet. Yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, spent uh, two, two and a bit years in the cadet. Started off training at the depot, yeah. for those that are old enough to remember that depot. Uh, and then uh, did my recruit training at, at the academy, so I've got, I've got the best, best of both worlds. So, I wasn't a, a cadet. <laughs> so, talk me through that. Well, what's, what, what happened when you were a cadet? Well, cadets in those days, there were two styles of cadets. There were those that were close to 18, etc. And they, they were just given some preamble police training, so to speak, and helped worked in watch houses as, as, you know, at the counter, etc., etc. Um, but there was also a group that, because of our age, uh, they had the what they call the PES, the Police Education Scheme, and I did both my leaving and matriculation, so years five and six, or whatever they call them now, maybe 11, 12, whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, did my leaving and matriculation at, uh, in the police force. Uh, one of the few of the 24 of us, not all of us, Got the actual matric that uh, I was lucky enough to get, and then uh, went went out to the academy and uh, started working there. And, uh, Did you always want to be a cop? No, in fact, uh, the irony is that uh, prior to this, I had desires of uh, uh, doing medicine, and actually, I had this fascination because I've been fascinated by the human brain for so long. I wanted to be a brain surgeon, and then ended up needing one. <laughs> so. <laughs> Sort of trying to get get ahead of the game, so to speak. Um, yeah, and that will become apparent later on when yeah. you need a brain surgeon. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to be a brain surgeon, but uh, then I, I I'd been a scuba diver for two years. By then, I joined a group called uh, Paddy, sorry, Paddy uh, ADA Associated Divers Academy, and um, I'd become a diver. I started learning diving at the sea bars in the sea. Oh gosh, geez, that's hard to work. Oh, just just to clarify yeah. for you guys that couldn't work there. Um, and uh, I'd seen a, a program, they used to have a, a thing like Sunday Magazine or something back in the early 70s. And it was a bit like 60 Minutes, it, it did specials on this. Yeah. And they were talking about the Victoria Police Search and Rescue Squad. And I thought, God, that's not a bad job, you know, diving, getting paid to dive. I love this underwater stuff. Uh, so my entire role for joining the police force in the first place was to actually go into the search and rescue. Search and rescue. That's why I joined. Um, and uh, I, I eventually got there. I was lucky enough 
uh, to be accepted into a training course within the year of, the year of graduation. Um, and well, so you graduated and what, I spent a sort of a, all, a year in... August, August I graduated and either September, October of that year or the year after, yeah. uh, there was a training course advertised, um, over 230 applicants, and I managed to weasel my way through to actually go on the course and uh, joined the search and rescue squad. Apparently, I'm the youngest member ever to join search and rescue, and search and rescue in Victoria is uh, a bloody good, bloody good role. I mean, we do every single facet of search and rescue, yeah. whereas Sydney, for example, uh, there's certain police do diving, certain police do pick rescue, yeah. etc. Um, and apparently, uh, from what I'm told, more people have actually been on the International Space Station than have actually been a full -time, full time member of the system. This is what, um, you know, it's that hard to get in. Uh, so I spent a couple of years there, and then uh, stupidly, through my own actions, I made myself probably not a good member to be there. And yeah. it was through my own those actions. In hindsight, I can look back and say, yes, it was my fault. Yeah. I had to leave. Yeah. No one else was not my bosses. My boss was doing the right thing. Yeah. And I, I actually got a chance to, to shake his hand many, many years later at one of our, I think it was our 40-year reunion, um, 40 years of existence of the squad, uh, to actually shake his hand and say, yes, it hurt me a lot, and I was very, very angry with you, but what you did was right. Yep. And it was justified, and I created the wrong from my own, from my own backyard. Take accountability of your actions. Yeah. If yep. you do something, you are accountable for it. Yep. And so I had to uh, basically bear my ass in Burke Street and say, boss, you were right, I was wrong, I was stupid, my fault, not yours. Thank you so much for giving me the time you did. Yeah. Uh, and shook his hand, uh, which I then was lucky enough to be invited to his inspector, his funeral, Mr. Bill Brand, a man I hugely respect, the creator of the search and rescue squad in Victoria. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm just honoured that I had a chance to work on him. I Wish I had learned the lesson he wanted to teach me earlier. Yeah, but I did. Yeah. Oh, that's benefit of hindsight, yeah. isn't it? And it's we all we all great, hindsight's great stuff. You only could have it beforehand. Yeah. Mm. Right. Okay. So from so you went to from search from and rescue, then, then to, over to uh, the public relations division, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, we used to spend a week touring. We'd go out for a week and tour a country hub. So we'd go to Ballarat and go to every little school right around Ballarat, uh, and then we'd come back, do another uh, three weeks of work in metro area, and then out for a week up to Mildura and do all the schools there. And that was absolutely fantastic. That was so much fun. Um, you know, getting, to, getting the kids to understand that we're more than just a guy in suit. Yeah. You have to adapt your, your presentation. And when you get to the one-room school where you've got to sort of keep both the preps and the yeah. seniors happy, it's a bit of a trial, but it's great fun. And just to see the, the look of life and, and understanding in their faces, yeah. it has been great. I loved it. So that would have been the predecessor to police schools involvement program? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Victoria Police Public Relations Division had uh, the display branch where Ivan Ray came from. That's where I met Ivan. Um, uh, it also had the display section. Uh, the lecture squad and uh, technical section. So we all worked together. You know, uh, display section would build all the stuff for uh, the Royal Melbourne Show, etc. Yep. And also do stuff for the lecture squad, you know, props we, we, we need. Uh, and as I say, just spent a couple of years back and forth from there. Uh, 
um, but then executive instruction of 94 came out. And I was in public relations and I had less than 12 months to get out of the station, build a portfolio and get before the CIB. Um, an impossible task. Yeah. Impossible task. Um, so I, uh, I uh, left public relations. Um, just trying to think for me. Uh, and then I uh, got a vacancy at Sandringham and went to Sandringham and uh, oh, that was a great station. Beach patrols. Yeah, beach patrols during summer, really great boss. And you get back from court, nothing to do. Okay, go and check that you know, the, the women are safe out, in the, out on the beach. So, <laughs> yeah, get the old uh, duffel bag, or not duffel bag, a little shoulder bag with the, the firearm in it, and uh, off you go down the beach. And, down the beach. It was hard job, hard job. Getting paid that beach patrol. A dirty job, someone's got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Always up for the task. Um, so I went from Caulfield Crimeys, oh, sorry, from uh, Sandringham. Uh, and then was uh, fortunate enough to get a vacancy at uh, Corporate Chromecast. Yep. And uh, worked with uh, some uh, famous and infamous people in the career. I mean, my, my very first sergeant back at St. Hilda uh, was a man of some repute. Uh, he was my training sergeant, uh, Brian Murphy. Yeah. Uh, and that will probably explain to a lot of people what sort of person I am if Brian Murphy was my training sergeant. Um and, and Snapper, Keith or Snapper Fleming, uh, Frank Spencer, Spurt Spencer, a few legends in the force, uh, and were my training sergeants. Thoroughly enjoyed St Kilda, um, but time to move from there. From where I go from St Kilda, crikey. Oh, yeah, then from St Kilda to the Caulfield Prime Cars. And that's, of course, where the injury occurred. Right, uh, so how long were you at um, the Crime Cars prior to? Probably a couple of years. Couple of years, so I'm enjoying it. Oh, loving it, loving yeah. it. I got, uh, I got involved in a joint uh, just before I got shot. I got in joint. Uh, I became the coordinator and sort of started the, started the investigation into uh, Operation Nautilus, which was a joint federal state task force. Yeah. And uh, in those days, uh, millions of dollars weren't weren't really being seized, and we ended up. Um, getting a 13, $13 million bust of uh, heroin down the corrugations of a, a container. And that was as a result of uh, following up uh, an investigation. $13 million in those days. In 84. Would have been... A bit. Not too many of those. Yeah, yeah, there, were, there weren't many of them. Very rare. Yeah. I, would have, I would think a million dollars would have been rare. Mm. Yeah. Let alone 13. So... Reasonable so, job. Yeah, yeah. I'm proud to be part of it. But then, whilst we're still processing that, yeah, bang, someone said that duck and I looked up instead of looking down. Uh, right, talk so, me through it. Uh, the night. Uh, oh, God, that was, a, that was a hell of a night. Uh, myself and uh, Paul, Paul uh, Gilbert, my partner, in crime cars, for those that don't know, because it's changed now, uh, in crime cars you work in a, a four or five man crew. And you all work together. That's how you worked. Um, and we did our job together. Um, that night, Paul and I were on 62 night shift. Uh, and uh, it was getting close to that midnight. past midnight. And uh, we were, in fact, um, down at, we were at Chaston Shopping Centre, which I spoke about before. I don't know if it was on, on, on air or not. No. Um, prior to that, um, a couple of weeks before, prior to that, young man by the name of Dean William Wright, had uh, been on top of Cheston and been taking 
uh, pot shops there, everyone in the car park, uh, because Caulfield, uh, Chatson Shopping Centre was in our Caulfield area, we turned up, and uh, uh, sadly this young man uh, got really upset and was taking his pot shots at everyone and shooting at the channels in the helicopter, which is important, because of course he was, um, and uh, taking shots at the channels in the helicopter and the police all the time. Eventually this kid finally decided that uh, um, escape was a better part of courage, and uh, he shot himself in the head while he was on top of the lift rock. I was there for that. Um, and the night finished. Yep. Uh, that was it. That was my only involvement with Dean William Wright. Uh, research has shown further. Uh, the guy that shot me, young Kai Kelly, or Kai Mackey, owner, whatever his name he wants to use now, because I know he's changed his name. Um, Kai developed a hero worship for him. Um, Kai was an ex-member of the Army Reserve, and in fact an ex-member of the unit that I ended up working at as well in the Army. Uh, I ended up being a training sergeant at Monash University, I'm sorry, training warrants at Monash University Regiment, and that was where he was. So it just keeps on wrapping right. over itself. Um, anyway, we developed a, a hero worship for Dean and blamed the police force for everything. Um, so some weeks later, uh, young Kai got himself got his rifle and went out to Channel 10 when it was out at Nana Wadding <coughs> and shot up the Channel 10 chopper just to get revenge because of what what uh, Channel 10's involvement in Dean's death. And yep. uh, now Kai had a room filled with books of mercenaries, soldier of fortune, all that sort of thing. So he was a frustrated mercenary, okay? uh, and obviously uh, not quite altogether. Um, and on the night of the shooting on the 20th of November, he had an argument with his parents over a dog. And in fact, you know, the way I look at it is my, worth is my life is worth a dog because that's how we started. Um, so Kai went out that night to uh, to this time get even with Channel 10 and he's smart. This time he, carried, he got a jerry can of fuel and he got, I think it was two to three hundred rounds of ammunition now. All that ammunition he had spent some time on, uh, premeditated, uh, spent some time on actually home adapting the rounds. He cross filed the head and then drilled the centre of the cross so that the bullet would explode on impact, yeah. which I'm glad it did because if it had been solid it would have killed me. Um, but he adapted all these rounds. And then he went out to Channel 10 to try and get even. Uh, the idea was pour petrol over the chopper because when he shot it last time, he just put holes in the fuselage, which they fixed up. Uh, but his intention was to pour fuel over the chopper and then fire off as many rounds as he could until he got a spark and then up she'd go. Uh, unfortunately, while he was, when he went out there, the chopper was out on assignment. So he was frustrated, couldn't get what he wanted. So he headed home. He used to live in Bo Morris, and uh, so he headed home. Hang on, Frick. And on the way, um, pardon me interrupting, lighting up a cigarette. Hey, they're going to kill me, aren't they? Um, uh, yeah, on the way back to home, uh, he stopped at a few of the old disposal stores. Now, those of us with any veteran status in a job or even a long time living, well, no, the old disposal stores used to have handguns, you know, fake handguns, yeah. in display in the windows. 
And Kai owned a shotgun. He owned a high-powered rifle, a 223, which was a Swiss Army leader assault rifle, so it's a proper assault rifle. A bit like your AK-47 or your SLR. Um, and so he saw these handguns and he thought, eh, I might try and get one of those. You know, he locked around off his collection. Um, so he's driven home, driving around various places. He ends up in Clayton and sees uh, Mr. Peter Paul, the late Mr. Peter Paul, um, who's a security guard. Pete's car is parked on a double driveway. Um, so his car's at a bit of an angle. And uh, he drove past Pete. So, so he was a security guard who was in a Wormald's car and thought, this guy's going to have a handgun. I'll have to get that. Drove past Pete, stopped his car, and uh, walked back. Now, Pete, Peter was obviously having a kick because his seat was rolled right back. Um, he, he was a gate checker anyway. He doesn't carry firearms. He's just a gate checker. Um, so he walked up back towards Peter, and Peter stirred. Now, possibly having a wet dream, but who knows? He moved. He moved. And as a result, um, Kai just blasted, uh, I think it was 16 rounds through the car, through the door of the car, um, and you know, took bits of metal from the door skin into Pete's body um, and killed him. Hopefully he died instantly. Uh, the bullets were that powerful, that, or the rounds were that powerful that actually blew one of his arms off, hit him in the elbow and blew the arm off. Uh, it went through his chest, uh, decimated his liver, his spleen, his heart. Yeah. Death was hopefully, mercifully, pretty quick. Yeah. Pretty quick. Uh, and then, because he had left evidence at the previous shooting of Channel 10, before he did anything else, he then picked up every expended round at the scene. Because he knew he'd left evidence at Channel 10 last time, he didn't want to leave evidence that would match him to this one. Yep. Uh, so he picked up all, all the expended rounds. Then he grabbed Pete and pulled him out of the car in such a way that Pete's feet were still in the car, but his body was on the ground. Now, you add to that the fact that the car's on the angle because of the, the driveway. Uh, his feet are up, he's headed down, uh, and he bleeds, to death, or bleeds out very quickly. If he's yep. not dead already, yep. he's bled out really quickly. So... We're at Chatsden now. We're now doing a, uh, the, old, the old patrol running number plates you know, in his stolen cars in the car park of Chatsden, when it was much, much smaller than it is. Okay. Uh, so you had, no, you had enough time to actually get a field. Um, and a call comes out to uh, a suspect body down in Clayton. Now, I've worked in Sandringham before, and, uh, and I knew Sandringham, Bob Morris, Clayton. I, I knew the whole area. We used to actually go to... Uh, go to the Sandringham Home Broadway Bakery and pick up the night's bread, which we paid for, of course. Um, and that's my story. I'll stick to it about. Um, but pick up the night's bread. And uh, so we got the call. Uh, Cheltenham Crime Cars were occupied with another job, I believe, at that stage. Um, and that was Mick Warhol and Paul Dacey. Um, so we came up there and said, we're not far away. I know how to get there. Straight down Spring Bowl Road, Kingston Road, and you're there. Um, so let's go. And we headed down there, and uh, we were first on the scene. And as you were driving up uh, the road, you, you could see this black, dark line down the gutter, uh, which is Peter's blood, yeah, just a trail of blood down the gutter. Um, and when we got to him, yeah, obvious, he's gone. Yeah. No chance of, you know, 
no point in calling anyone. He's gone. He's nothing. Uh, so we're sort of manning the scene for a while, and then Cheltenham turns up. Cheltenham primaries turn up, and uh, we swap positions um, because it's their home area. They they take care of the scene, and Paul and my job was then to go around to every security guard we find and you know, get information. Have you seen, seen anything? Have you heard anything? Did you hear a shot? The usual usual sort of background check. Yep. So um, we're doing all that, and actually at uh, one point we're in, we're at the Home Pride Bakery again. I love the coincidence of this. Uh, we're at the Home Pride Bakery again, and the call goes out from Sandringham uh, 311. What had happened, and it's funny how this has all worked out, uh, what had happened is uh, Kai had actually left the scene and basically reversed the route we were driving. We actually passed each other on the way. Um, he basically went over to Springvale Road, then up uh, the Penn Highway to South Road, along South Road to the beach, down to Rickers Point. And uh, that's how we basically passed each other in Springvale Road. Uh, and the uh, Sandringham boys, being uh, Peter Kieran and uh, Graham Fletcher, uh, miles away from this, so they're, they're not putting the two together at this stage, who would? Um, and they've got this old HR Holden that's uh, uh, sort of obviously old and a bit decrepit, and I think one headlight was gone, so uh, they'll do it for a licence check. So they go to pull him over at Ricketts Point, and uh, Kai puts his brakes on so the front of the car drops down and um, gave indicate, and put his indicator on, gave every indication he was pulling over. Uh, so the boys relaxed a little bit because everything's fine, as you do. Uh, and in the meantime, he's changed his uh, he's uh, changed down the first gear and he's reassembled both the rifle group, uh, the butt group, and the stock group, as a weapon, which he'd taken apart after shooting Peter. Uh, and uh, about, I don't know, Peter and Graham were about to 20, 20, 10 metres from, from the intercept. He suddenly dropped the clutch, spun out beside them, picked up the weapon, and shot through his own windows uh, at Peter and Graham. And off he's gone. Now, Pete and Graham have thought, well, uh, there's damage to the car. Transport branch are going to want to know who to, who to blame for it <laughs> or who to send the account to. So pursuits come up. Uh, and they've travelled around the various side streets of uh, Bo Morris until eventually um, the old HR just can't give up, keep up with the, with the power of uh, Sandringham behind them. And eventually cars uh, just died. Yeah. The car's died. In the space of a couple of seconds, uh, Kai's got out of the car and has now got his weapon reassembled and he's using the bottom as a uh, as a firing stance, using the bottom to shoot, to aim at uh, Peter and Graham. And every time uh, the interior lights went on, because in those days our interior lights all automatically went on, yeah. and uh, yeah, there's... Something about that I want to talk about. Um, either way, so every time they open the door, bang, 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 bang. Uh, so Graham's got up on the floor and basically on the air and said, uh, "Hey guys, we're having a party. You know, anyone want to join us? Come down here." Of course, the air's gone, gone crazy. You know, Swan Hill 303 on the way. Yeah. You know, Mildura 311, not far off. You know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Everyone's on the way. Um, and um, by that stage. Paul is out of the car, 
I, he was the driver that night. Um, I've pulled out of the car talking to um, the guy from Home Pride, can't remember his name, um, and I've picked up the pick up the radio and said 406, and I'm sending him, I've Caulfield 406 on the way. Picked up the PA system because we had a PA in those cars as well. It was a, it was a Mark car. Yeah, it was Mark car. And um, hopped in the driver's seat. By the time Paul's run back to the car, because I've pulled over the PA, Sandring Hamburgers are being shot, let's go. Um, by the time he, he's got the car, I'm in the driver's seat. He gets one foot in the, in the car and we're off. Yeah. Uh, dragging his foot behind him. Uh, unfortunately, I let Adrenaline take over. Uh, did some stupid things to get there. I uh, went through the intersection of Kingston Road and Old Geelong Road, about 140, and that's when it had a big hump at the intersection. We, oh. land, we landed 40 metres later, <laughs> bottomed out the sump. You know, I just let adrenaline take yeah. over. Yeah. It was stupid, which is why at the academy I tried to talk about yeah. controlling, controlling the adrenaline. Um, and uh, we got down there so quick, and apparently by the two, D24 tape, at 2 minutes 23. Uh, 20 minutes, 23 seconds from me coming up on the air to the time we arrived in. So, yeah, driving like a cut snake. And how the hell I didn't kill us, and I'm glad I didn't, but how the hell I didn't kill us all the way is beyond me. Anyway, we get there. And the whole idea is then uh, under the direction of both our own own decision and also everything else, the idea is to surround the park because uh, he's gone from... In the time it's taken me to get from A to B, he's gone from the park, oh sorry, gone from behind the car into Griffiths Griffiths Reserve, Griffiths Reserve, uh, which no longer exists. There's now houses, but it was a park there, uh, and he's gone into the park. So the entire intention of everyone there is surround the park, random patrols, just keep his head down until the men in men in black turn up, and they can take it from there. Um, unfortunately, one of the guys was driving around with his high beam on, um, and the army, army veteran, we didn't like that too much. So we ended up driving past each other, driver's side window to driver's side window, and I think I used a couple of expletives where I told him, I asked him very, very sedately to turn his damn lights off because he was spotlighting us. Um, at that stage, and that was at, at, at the roundabout, and we then turned into Tramway Parade and uh, got down the road. By that stage, Kai has moved. He's no longer in the park on our right-hand side because we're literally driving around, again, taking on information that we heard instead of assessing other information, yeah. you know, tunnel vision. And so we're all basically looking into the park, trying to find ahead, trying to see some sort of indication of him. But by that stage, he got out of the park. He was on my left-hand side, so we're looking away from him. And um, he waited until we were measured by homicide, forensics. He waited until we were 16 metres from him. He'd already been, we'd already been um, highlighted to him because my my call out to the other car and and the lights and etc. Uh, he stood up from behind this little brick fence and uh, put uh, 27 rounds from my car. Uh, turned my car into Swiss cheese. Um, first round hit the passenger side tyre, next round hit the passenger side headlight, and uh, next five or six rounds uh, went across the body diagonally. Now, he's been trained by the Army uh, in, in shooting, so he's watching his fall of shot. 
because of you know, very limited street lights. And he was watching where his shots were actually landing, and he was trying to get trying to get the driver because he could immobilise the driver. Yep. You're right. By that stage, however, uh, a couple of rounds he hit the rocker cover of the, the engine, and the car was dead. He wasn't going nowhere. Um, so he could have just left it at that. Um, Paul, and then then we started to get sprays across the windscreen. Uh, Paul did the only thing, and I do mean the only thing anyone could have done, because uh, we were in a Commodore, four on the floor. He bent over the, the gear lever as low as he could, trying to leave as much room as he could for me, but basically put the engine block between him and the shooter. Yeah. Uh, and that was the common sense, smart thing. I would have done exactly the same. And what he did was perfectly logical. Yep. And that's the way I feel about it. We would have been changed positions. I would have done exactly the yeah. same. Uh, but unfortunately, that left me with the steering wheel in front of me and no way to get out. Uh, so did the only thing I could do, because the engine was dead, uh, was to try and put the body of the vehicle between me and him. I could see that the, the shots and the noise and all that stuff, stuff was coming from our right front. So put myself on the other side of the vehicle, then you've got two diverse targets, Paul inside, me outside, hard for him to cover, cover us both, gives us a chance to do something. Um, but unfortunately, in the process of him watching his fall of shot, etc., and he's a good shooter, not a bad shooter. Um, he managed to know where, where his shot was going to land, and as I turned around in the car, he saw my head appear before, between the door pillar and the windscreen pillar. Yep. and pulled the trigger. Uh, bullet travelling 1,800 feet per second, travel that distance 16 feet, or 16 metres in very good time, uh, and I copped it in the back of the head um, and lay down for a while, <laughs> had a bit of a snooze, um, uh, lay down for a while, I'm still conscious, I was still conscious right until they got me to hospital. Um, and so, uh, hang on, I'll just, <laughs> so you've, been shot by a high-powered rifle in the back of the head, but you're still conscious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what were you feeling then? Like, like what? Pain. <laughs> Just oh, lots of pain. Pain. It was like, like my body was on fire. The, the, your, your entire body. Yeah, because it hit. I mean, it fragmented into fragmented into 37 fragments. So there's parts of that bullet in every quadrant of my brain. Every quarter of my brain's got parts of the bullet. Um, you know, frontal lobe, um, cerebellum, the whole bit. It's all got one or two fragments of fragments of metal there. So you full were you aware at this stage that you had been shot? No, no, no. All I all I all I could feel was pain. It was just just the overriding thing was massive pain. 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 Um, I believe I shit myself. I know I urinated. Um, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> we had no control over anything. Um, and the pe the people are the heroes in this are Paul and Never been able to find a name. The young female operator, radio operator. Yeah. She was brilliant. She was. She kept Paul calm. Um, she didn't know he was being observed all the time. Um, she she just did so much for for Paul. I, I'll never be able to thank her enough. Yeah. How how much she helped me. Um, Paul got the wrong call sign. He called us uh, called us Cheltenham 406. But what the heck? Um, and uh, there was a another vehicle there, a uh, southern. TOG vehicle was able to see us and he was reporting on you know, if there was anyone there and the radio operator just basically said you're being watched, you're safe we'll know if anyone's coming towards you 
just keep your head down, we'll get to you. Um, and so she did a, a, an amazing job of helping my, my buddy because we were close. Our team was a tight play team. Um, and uh, Paul just lay on the lay on the front seat of the car, as far as I'm aware, with his firearm in his chest. And basically, if a head had come up, yeah. he was going to take care of it. Um, so the night goes on. Um, but the bosses uh, made a direction that no one was to go go and save us yeah. uh, because no one knew who this shooter was uh, where he was and had to, you know, it could have been just the typical IRA situation draw them all in and yeah. then fire up so yeah. um, decision by the boss I support as well um, may have not wanted it but it's an appropriate decision by the boss yeah. uh, but um, Mick and Paul um, shot them 406 uh, wasn't good enough for them uh, so they disobeyed a directive, and I can only thank them for it. Uh, and they just said, "Look, we, we might just zap down and see if we can grab them." You know, all all very cares, and yeah. Mick's always been a very very cares bloke. You know, we we, we just might zap down and see if we, we can do something here. So, uh, as far as I'm aware, and Mick, if I'm wrong, please forgive me. I can only go by the memories I have. But uh, they grabbed me um, and threw me in the back of the car. And Paul then is running around the car in ever-diminishing circles. I grabbed him and threw him on top of me, which is probably where I got the whiplash, um, and uh, did a flying reverse phalanx with other cars joining them and down to down to uh, where the ambulance were waiting. And uh, I'm still conscious at that stage. Uh, not with it. Well and fully out of it, but not with it. But there. Uh, and... Um, then uh, later on, again, coincidence, I end up meeting the ambulanceman many, many years later in the army. He's in the army. I end up meeting him. And, the degrees uh, of separation. Oh God! Outstanding. Yeah. Well, what? And it's part of the story. Um, I went to sit. I was instructor on a promotion course, and uh, this guy, uh, Mr. Nagel, came up to me and said, oh, "Sergeant Fenn, at least you're not spitting at me this time." He's a warrior, so I'm thinking. What, 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 what's going on? <laughs> uh, I don't remember ever spitting at a senior rank. And uh, he tells me that he's, a, he's the uh, ambulanceman, the senior one on the crew that night that uh, yeah. attended me. And what had happened is um, because I'd been laying on, on my stomach for anything up to an hour waiting, waiting for recovery and I'd been shot in the back of the head, uh, all the blood had pooled at the front of the head. Yeah. So it looked like a, it was a through and through. They actually gone right through yeah. my head. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he had a young train, trainee with him. Uh, so the Emmons guy made a quick assessment, made a quick triage assessment, and basically said, a snafu, yeah, situation normal, no, no, way, no way of saving this guy. Uh, whereas Paul, uh, a lot of people downplayed those injuries. Paul's injuries were massive. He, his back was shredded by the exploding windscreen. Literally shredded, yeah. and he had a, a real chance of dying from blood loss from shock. Um, and uh, you know, it's important that people know just how how badly you know. Everyone talks about mind injuries. Yeah. Paul was massively affected, and then psychologically affected yeah. because of survivor guilt. Yeah. You know, he went through a really hard time. I was sleeping. I had mm. it easy. He was going through a hard time. Um, so anyway, um, they they looked at Paul, and the senior guy said, "Look." There's a chance we can save Paul from shock because he's going. He's lost a lot of blood. He's going to lose more. We can possibly save Paul 
got no chance here. Yeah. Yeah. Ron's, he's gone. Yeah. That's it. Um, so that, he made a triage decision, which I fully support, to you know, keep me comfortable a bit and then concentrate on Paul, the one yeah. they could save. Uh, and after a few minutes, etc., apparently uh, he tells me that he turned around and instead of lying on the ground, I'm now sitting up <laughs> with my head wobbling like a, a bobble, one of those bobble dogs. <laughs> um, and it's, hark! Uh, sorry, swore, sorry. Um, you know, we better do something about it. And uh, so they they started to you know, dress my wound and all that sort of thing. Um, so we go off in a, a flying the wedge off towards the off towards the hospital, cops and police cars and officers and all that sort of shit. And uh, I finally get to the hospital, I'm wheeled in on my stomach. And if you've seen any of the vision, you can see how distressed Paul is. Uh, he's in, in one bit of film, and you can see how absolutely overwrought he is. He, yeah. he, this is, you know, um, close or not, we're partners in the job, and you know, one of them is gone. And if you've seen the recent one, he was cradling my head in the ambulance and he'd been told that I'm not going to make the trip. Yeah. Um, my my pulse was somewhere around 140 to 160. Um, my my uh, pupils were unequal, unreactive. And uh, I was doing what they call chain stoke breathing, which is the death rattle. Three breaths yeah. in, three breaths out. A cough, a breath, pause. You know, mm. Basically just the, the body shutting down. Uh, so they got me to hospital got wheeled in and uh, went into the emergency department. Um, at that stage, I'm, I'm unconscious again. Oh, sorry, no, I'm conscious again, sort of. And Dr. Christine Wall, who's the, on, who's the doctor in charge at the particular stage, uh, comes to examine me and she puts her hand on the head and I use that moment to say, please don't hurt me anymore. I've moved my arm to protect my head and said, please don't hurt me anymore or something like that. And of course, they suddenly realised, shit, he can talk, he can respond, he's, he's feeling pain. Uh, he's not quite as dead as we thought he was, uh, because on the trip, they'd been conveying my obs and I'd been marked in FR, not for resuscitation, mm-hmm. which again, triage decision, smart yeah. decision, appropriate yeah. decision. Yeah. Uh, no problems with that. Um, so, but suddenly, situation changed. And apparently they had a drunk in the bath at that stage, the way they used to treat the old drunks, you know, dry them out a bit. Uh, and he was left, left in the bath for over an hour, you know. Well, he's still alive, yeah, that's fine. And put more water in, yeah, that's fine, we'll come back to him. Everyone's basically taking care of Paul and I, and I'm glad they spent so much time on Paul because he's okay. Um, so uh, then uh, after some time, I've uh, slipped into a coma. And I distinctly remember that. Um, it was like stepping into a warm bath, uh, a body temperature, like an immersion pool or a, a yeah. sensory pool. Yeah. It was like stepping into a, a, a sensory pool. Um, the pain stopped in my toes and my fingers. And it stopped in my wrists and my ankles, then in my knees. And, and basically, as I stepped into the bath, the pain just dissipated. So we're not talking about a medically induced coma here. It's a natural. No, your they body. did that, they did that later. Yeah. But yeah, at uh, I this just, stage. Yeah, at that stage, I slipped into a natural coma. body induced yeah. coma. Yeah, protect, you know, shutting down to protect protect as much as they could. Um, so I slipped into a coma, and then they kept that with a chemically induced coma yeah. from then on. Um, and my last conscious thought was, 
that's it, Ronnie. You've bought the big one. You've won Tassado. You're out of here. You're not coming back from this one. Uh, it was clarity of thought. I, I literally thought I was dying. That I was about to die. And uh, so, yeah, nothing will do about it. So here it goes. Yeah. Uh, and then 10 days later, I woke up and uh, um, thinking I was a medical experiment, thinking I was a dog in a medical experiment. Uh, dog. <laughs> See, I've got dog. Yeah. Uh, Kawiki dinghy. Um, yeah, I woke up thinking I was a dog in a medical experiment. I was a, I was a terrible patient. Yeah. Um, because I was terribly confused, I kept on ripping out my cardiovascular line, my trachea and all that thing. I kept on ripping them out, and yeah. then they'd have to reinsert them, which is not fun. fun. Not fun, especially the nasogastric swallow, Mr. Fenton, swallows. Um, so do you know now that you had been shot? Oh, by that stage, that stage, uh, not the first couple of days. Yeah. It took, took about three days before someone actually revealed to me that I, I'd been shot with this yeah. state. And also, I, I just wasn't in the mental capacity to, to, to take on board. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was just, I knew I was in pain. I knew I was suddenly crippled. I couldn't do anything. I didn't recognise people. You know, the world was strange. Yeah. Strange. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, got over that and moved on. And woke up 10 days later. And I remember my family had been told that uh, when family arrived, they were told I'd be dead in three hours, which is, again, appropriate. Uh, then they said that I'd be dead in three days. And my body would slowly shut down. It was yeah. shutting it quickly, but now it's slowing down. It will shut down eventually. Uh, I'll be, I'll be, uh, I'll be dead in three days. Uh, then they were told, uh, look, uh, we don't know when he's going to die, but, but he will die. And in the meantime, he'll be a vegetable. Yeah. He, he'll never recover from this coma. He'll never never be able to speak again, never be able to walk again. His brain has been decimated yeah, yeah. with all the fragments. 37 of them. Yeah, so yeah, except that he's going to be a, a vegetable yeah. for the rest of his life. Um, and then uh, then I started to recover, come out of the coma. And that was a shock to everyone because you know, 10 days in intensive care and suddenly I'm going to re uh, recovery. From those injuries, a bit bloody weird. Um, so they they moved me up to recovery, but as I regained consciousness, uh, they said, "Yeah, you know, he, look, he won't be able to talk. He, his brain, you know, speech said it's shattered." And uh, so the doctor comes in, Doctor uh, Jeff Turnbull, the registrar, comes in and asks me, uh, "How are you feeling, Ron?" And my response, and it's been relayed to me by Bernadette, my partner at that time, and a number of other people that were there. Um, my response was uh, a little bit confused. I can't seem to correlate my visual perceptions with the reality around me. <laughs> and the doctor said, fuck, you speak better than I do. <laughs> um, so, so much for never being able to talk again. Yeah. And a lot of people are still angry about that, that I did get, get the ability to talk again. Um, and then I spent... A total of three months, one day, 13 and a half hours at, uh, at the Alfred, in the various wards. Uh, got home, bored as shit. Uh, so three weeks later, I turned up to Caulfield Crime Car Office. This is before work cover had the yeah. you know, return to work certificate and all that sort of thing. So I just turned up at work and uh, spoke to boss and said, I'm here. I'm not leaving. Give me something to do. Uh, so here's a pad and paper. There's a storeroom. Go do something. So what injuries? What injuries did you cop from it? Uh, basically, uh, what they call right-sided hemiparesis. So I have 
absolutely no sensation on the right hand side of my body. Yep. Um, I I can move the body well, but I I have no indication in space where it is. Yeah. I close my eyes, my hand, my right arm could be in the air or down the bottom side. I just can't feel it. Because yep. all the nerves have been severed in the brain. So right side of hemiparesis, uh, a bit like hemiplegia, but not so quite bad. Prior to it, you were right hand dominant. Yep, I was right hander. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And now? Left hand. Left so you hand. taught yourself. Yeah, I had learned to shoot non-master hand and and fight and wipe my bum and do everything one-handed, uh, but the other hand. Yeah. Uh, and that took time. Uh, um, even learning to write, like they, the OT gave me this book where I had to write down words and like it's three 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 words to a page: uh, cat, sat, mat. <laughs> you know, back to school. And uh, there's one where I've, I've been doing an S and I'm halfway through the S and realised I've got it wrong. So I've, you know, big tear across the oh, bugger that. Got it wrong. Yeah. Here am I used to be a wordsmith and I can't even write the word sat. Yeah. Uh, um, but that took a bit of time. So. A lot of rehabilitation, um, and uh, at that stage, at the time of the shooting, I'd actually put in for vacancy as uh, the sergeant in charge at Glen Huntley Police Station. Mm. Now, back in those days, everything was senior seniority. Yep. Right. And I was the senior applicant. Yep. Uh, so I would have got would have got the vacancy. Would have been yep. uh, OC Glen Huntley Station. I thought backwater had yep. fun. Uh, but for some reason, the departments decided I'm probably not, equipped, not ready to take the job on just now. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't get the vacancy. Um, but uh, start, kept on working at Caulfield Crime Cars, um, spending three days a week at uh, Caulfield Hospital doing uh, rehabilitation, OT, speech therapy, all that sort of stuff. Um, and they did a pretty good job trying to get me to walk again, all that sort of, all that sort of father. But uh, also, you know, I was injured and I was occupying a vacancy at Caulfield Crime yeah. Yards where a full able-bodied male female could take yeah. a job. But just, I'll just, yep. w- with the speech therapy, so yep. with the damage to your brain and mm. the, the 37 fragments that are floating around, did that, mm. how did that affect your speech? Uh, access to, access to words, uh, vocabulary, um, and also... Um, just control of the mouth um, because the tongue is a very, very complex order, organ. Yep. And uh, trying to get it to work the right, right way is yep. very hard. Uh, you couple with that the confusion of what had happened and the, the memory loss that I, I got. Um, sometimes my conversation would go off on weird, wild tangents that yep. even I didn't understand. Yep. Um, so it, it hit my speech rather badly. Because uh, I've always, my father brought me up to actually love the English, the English language, yep. and the nuances you can put in. Yeah, you can, you can be extremely insulting without saying anything mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. You know, such things as he means well. You know, I love that. It's yeah. one of the greatest, <laughs> greatest insults you can give. <laughs> he means well. Um, so it was hard, and also there, there was a lot of lot of fear, uh, a lot of fear about how good I would get back. Yeah. Um, whether I would get back when I was in hospital when they did one of the interviews uh, I said that I was going to go back to, go back on the job back on the street within 12 months got the time frame wrong took me 12 years yeah but yeah. I got there still got it yeah I got there so it was, you... it was always always my intention from the moment I realised what had happened my intention was come hell or high water I will get back to the street yeah or I will die in the attempt I'll yeah. be there yeah but uh, uh, 
Now, I joined the police force to be a cop. Yeah. And, and I learned after my experience, I love the street. I love working with the public. love solving problems, etc. So it was always my intention, no matter what, no matter what capacity, was to get back on the street. Yeah. So you've got, obviously, some pretty um, high-end physical injuries out of it, losing the, the right-hand side. So then on top of that, you have to learn you haven't got a dominant hand anymore, so your non-dominant hand now becomes your dominant hand. Yep. Learn to write, learn to wipe your ass and yep. do everything shoot. with your left hand, shoot, shoot. with your left hand. Yep. Um, and and fight. In, a, in a sense, learn to talk again. Yeah, well, Literally, 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 not even in a sense. In a, literally, I had to learn to talk. I had to learn actually how to think, how to compile a sentence in my head yeah. and how to express it and also how to get that, that sentence to be relevant to the conversation yeah. I was having. Yeah, you know, yeah. I understand. It's really, it's really complex to actually, the thought process and thought process of uh, thought to communication is bloody a lot more difficult than you realise when you're just doing it normally. Yeah. So, and with all of this now, um, that obviously takes a, a massive psychological impact. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, ha- how did you navigate through the that side of it? Like, because we're not talking about an era where mental health was openly spoken yeah. about yeah. and, yeah. you know, or what it is like now where we're getting a lot better at it, like, Back then, I mean, you can't exactly say, hey, Ron, go and harden up. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what we said in those days. Yeah. Um, so how, how did you navigate through the, um, you know, the A, as I was just explaining, then the A actually being shot, um, which is, you know, high-end trauma as it is, psychologically, but then with the difficulties that you face with the injuries that you now permanently had to live with. Pure stubbornness. Yeah. Stubborn. I I refuse to let it beat me. Yeah. It's that simple. Uh, as we were discussing before, my fa- my family brought me up with a very very simple attitude, and that is that uh, trauma happens in everyone's life. Yeah. And that's the way it is. And you have a choice. You have a choice in everything in your life. Because everything that you do stems from the decision you made before it. Yep. Uh, so, as we were talking before, ones and zeros, life is binary, yes or no. I had the choice to either ask the world to feel sorry for me and wrap myself up in cotton wool. And the fact of the matter is people will feel some sympathy, but eventually that will dissipate because they've got their own lives to leave. Yeah. Um, they've got, got to go on with their existence, uh, you can't be the most important thing in anyone's world other than your own. Um, so my family told me if trauma happens, you can either wrap yourself up in cotton wool, and I will say it and you can delete it if you need to. Uh, my family told me if you're looking for sympathy, look in the dictionary between <laughs> shit and syphilis because that's where you'll find it. Or you can dust yourself off and say, yeah, that's unpleasant, that's hurt, what have I got left? What can I do with what I've got left? Yeah. And nice. so I chose to be positive and to say, okay, I've been injured. I'm sure I can still do shit and attack it that way. Attack it as a challenge yeah. and uh, never look back. And as far as departmental attitudes and, and friends and all that sort of thing, you know, I had to be very, very uh, 
suppose self-serving. Yeah. I had to do. I had to put myself as a priority. Yeah. This was about what I could do in the future, um, without without impeding or upsetting any other people if I could avoid it, uh, and just set set my goal. Uh, and if I don't get to the goal, at least I tried. Yeah. But in the meantime, just keep on pushing with the overriding factor of it's entirely up to me how I deal with this. Yeah. And that's what, what all it is. You know, you, you have a choice in every circumstance in life and you can choose to let it beat you or you can choose to fight against it. Yeah. And, you know, as we've spoken about before this, as you know, I'm, I'm in the last stage of liver cancer and I'm having a ball yeah. because I'm choosing to enjoy it. Choosing to enjoy it. Yeah. And we'll touch on that. Yeah. So you're you're now three days a week. No, sorry, a couple of days yeah. Yeah. at Caulfield. You're three days at the rehab, hospital, et cetera. And then uh, and then uh, still having applied for the Caulfield job, uh, a Glenn Huntley job, I was still probably naive enough to think, hey, I'm going to beat this. Um, so I, since my physical capabilities or lack thereof, I applied for a role as um, personnel sergeant at Pran headquarters. Yep. Uh, and uh, much to the credit and recognition of the man, uh, I put in my application and I got a phone call from Nick Miller. Yep. And uh, just telling me that he was uh, signing the transfer order today. And he just wanted to congratulate me on my promotion from senior constable sergeant uh, and that I now have a vacancy of personnel sergeant at uh, Pran headquarters, nice. I district headquarters. And getting called, told by the boss himself is rather nice. Uh, my response was, well, boss, that, that's great, but I'll, of course, wait for the appeal period yeah. before I start to celebrate. Yeah. You know, someone may want that vacancy more than I do. And uh, Mick's response was, Ron, you're not listening to me. <laughs> you have the vacancy. There will be no appeal. Yeah. Um, so sort of reading between the lines, oh, I'm just about to be promoted as a sergeant. And uh, then I uh, went to Brand headquarters and had was lucky enough to have Jeff Thomas and Sandy Langlands, both senior sergeants at that stage of my immediate superiors, and they were really, really supportive. Yeah, I heard, I don't know the other one, but I did have some very minor dealings when I first came in with Sandy Langlands, mm. which is a super then. Mm. A lot of people speak very highly of her. Oh, yeah. yeah no, she, she, uh, she gave me a break. Uh, unfortunately, my highest boss uh, didn't like me much, and we won't go into that. He and I had a personality clash, um, and, uh, but Sandy supported me all the way through. And um, Either way, I was there at Sandringham. I'm oh, sorry, there at Pran headquarters. And uh, Pran at that stage was also the admin or supervisor, whatever you call it, for um, for search and rescue, yep. which was based out in St Gilda. Yep. Now, um, Jeff Frost was the senior sergeant of uh, search and rescue at that stage, and I actually trained Jeff Frost, Frost when I was in search and rescue. I trained him to be a diver. Yep. I was one of his instructing crew. Uh, and Jeff dropped into the office one day and saw I was there and uh, said, look, uh, I need a, someone that actually understands the squad. Yep. knows what we're about and yep. the reports we have to do and all that sort of stuff. I need an administrator because it's cutting into my time as the boss. Um, so I got seconded over to search and rescue for quite some time. 
um, and enjoyed that uh, for a while. But unfortunately, the department, because of their overprotective nature, nature towards me, even though I was a qualified diver, I can't, can't dive anymore, qualified bushwalker, uh, warrant officer with the army, etc., they wouldn't let me out of the office. And you know, I thought, well, at least I can go to a, a major land search and sit in the sit in the tent and yeah. coordinate, coordinate grid, and grid, grid searches. <coughs> but not to be. Um, so I was starting to get frustrated, bored, uh, and a vacancy came up at, uh, as it often was, uh, a vacancy came up at um, uh, the academy yeah. as Laurie. Uh, and my everything since the shooting has been me wanting to make a valuable contribution to the force. Yeah. Um, and I figured if I go to the academy as a law instructor, I have the chance to at least have some impact or in, input into the future of the force, the young guys that have yeah. been trained. Yeah. Um, so I, I loved being at the academy as a yeah. law instructor. Um, it was great. And, you know, I still get contacted by some of my recruits, both out of out of respect and out of terror. Um, but it's one of those positions, uh, like I, I know I've spoken to a few of my other lawyers, mm. and I, I remember mm. and I remember the lessons they taught me. Yeah. And not, and, and a lot of them weren't the lessons that were in the Crimes Act. No, no. A lot of the lessons were, when you are doing this, be mindful of that. Yeah, yeah. And I was mindful of that because mm. they told me and it stuck with me. Yeah. And, you know, like I've spoken to, you know, Joey Donovan. Yeah. On the numerous occasions, she still has a lot of contact with her recruits. Yeah. Because you do, you leave a very lasting impression on these. No, we call them our kids. <laughs> but, you know, some of them. On these young, impressionable people. <laughs> some of them. You know, a bit older than kids, obviously. Mm. But, um, you know, because, you know, it's a job, you know, take out the military. It's a job like no other. Mm. Oh, and absolutely. you've got to be aware and you've got to be, you yeah. know, with your eyes open with, with a lot of things because, mm. you know, intrinsically policing is dangerous. Yeah, oh, it is. Um, so to have, have the impact on the direct impact mm. on those coming out, yeah, oh, it's fantastic. But unfortunately, I also chose the time to go to the academy when they were starting to downgrade the rank and civilianise the position. Uh, yeah. um, so became senior constables being the instructors, uh, which I thought was probably uh, the wrong move because I, not many, there are some, but then not many senior constables have the wealth of experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Prior to Agreed. when I joined the job, and I've spoken to Mick Miller about this, um, all the assistant commissioner ranks were all ex-training men. Every assistant commissioner yeah. had had some stint in training men. Uh, it was basically a rite of passage, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I had this opportunity as a, a law instructor to try and influence the way in which people, our recruits and our future constables, Treated people, you know, being aware that humans will make mistakes. Yep. They, they will fuck up. Yep. And it's up to you, a choice that you make, how you treat that person. Yep. Um, so I enjoyed that, but, uh, yeah, they, they civilianised the position and uh, reduced the ranks down to senior constable. So it was time for me to move because uh, my job was disappearing underneath me. Yeah. Uh, so over to the 24. Yeah. And the reason I do chose D twenty four, sorry, I should have turned that very nice. Yeah. Yeah. I've got to answer this. Yeah, mate, grab it. Hey mate. We'll just do a quick pause. No mate, I haven't. 
Oh, no, we're back again. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, um, yeah, so uh, uh, transferred to G24 on the basis that it gave me the opportunity to be the sergeant on the street before the sergeant got on the street. Yeah. yeah. So you, you're there doing everything a sergeant should do and preparing preparing all the resources he needs, his backups and all that sort of thing, uh, getting everything done for him so that uh, when the sergeant arrives on the scene, everything's everything's hunky-dory yep. and we move on. So it gave me the opportunity to be involved again. Yep. Once more to be yep. involved again. Well, your feet are in the water, aren't Yeah, they? yeah, yeah. Um, so I enjoyed my time there. It was great fun. Also financially rather good in those days. Yeah. Um, and uh, unfortunately then, uh, one night, uh, it was one night, uh, the old back stairs, I fell down the back stairs and broke my back. Yeah, a disaster looking for a place to occur. And uh, so I was off for seven months with uh, with that. Bit argue, did a bit of an argument with Gallagher Bassett about various things, but eventually recovered, got through all that. Yeah. And uh, Workcover um, found a vacancy for me as a watch housekeeper. It's Murrabee. You know, I lived in Murrabee in those yeah. days. Um, being a watch housekeeper, answering the counter was basically what they're talking about. Wasn't my go-to spot, yeah. but it was somewhere, and yeah. it got me home. Yeah. Um, so I uh, I took the vacancy. I was I was appointed to um, Werribee by Workcover, and uh, that was in early 1995. I arrived at where I arrived at on the eighth of sorry the 9th of January 1995. Um, I then had a, an appointment with the boss, uh, as in my chief super, uh, a couple of days later, because, or the next day, because you know, welcome to the district, welcome to my, my my district, and this is what I expect from you, blah, 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 you know, usual sort of stuff that sergeants get. Uh, so I thought, well, before I actually go to this meeting with the boss, I'd better find out exactly where I stand medically in the job. And at that stage, the PMO was Dr. Will Black, yeah. wonderful, wonderful woman. Um, so I rang her because I'd been seeing her as a psych as well. Um, I rang her and uh, her comment was, well, basically because of the discrimination laws now, if you can pass OST, you qualify. Yep. You, you've got the position. Um, which was, and actually that phone call was made, was given to me on my birthday, on the 10th of January. It was, it was the best phone call I've ever had. <laughs> Uh, so the next day when I went to see the boss, I could say, hey, I've just got to do Austin, you've got yourself another member, and you've got a member free because you appointed by work cover, you know, supernumerary ranks. Uh, so that phone call was one, one of the best phone calls I've ever had because yeah. it got me back on the street yeah, again. Yeah, you're back. And uh, so I did Austin, completed Austin, et cetera, et cetera, and all these yeah, lads were quite enough to let me uh, be there. I've been there for about six months. And a vacancy came up in Werribee, and Peter Grundy, the senior sergeant, asked me to apply for it. And uh, I actually said, no, I don't, don't want to, because whilst I'm here as a supernumerary, you have an additional sergeant, you have extra staff, yeah. which is costing you nothing. Yeah. You know, let me stay here this way, and you get benefits. Yeah. Um, Peter's response was, yeah, but um, you're also here under work cover, and they can pull you at the moment. At moments, yeah. Moments yeah. Drop. So um, I want you to take the, go for the vacancy. 
So I went to the vacancy. I got it, even though I'm only a D-class driver because of the injury. Yep. Uh, and I then worked another 18 years uh, as a sergeant at Werribee and, and outside north, um, fully operational on the street, and had the best time I could imagine, you know, being able to get back get back to the street. And what got me was I had a senior constable's enthusiasm yeah, with a sergeant's rank, yeah. a sergeant's ability to, to make things happen. Yeah. Um, Best of both worlds. Yeah. You know, I was keen as mustard to get back on the street and have fun, yeah. but also had the authority of a sergeant to, yeah. to do stuff. Do stuff. So psychologically, where are you at now with the shooting? Acceptance. It is what yeah. it is. It like, is. Oh, sorry, when I say now, no. like um, when you're at Werribee. Oh, just excited. Yeah. Excited, wrapped, and, and, and thoroughly, thoroughly at peace with it because... It had happened, but it had made me the person I am. Yeah. I hated the physical uh, physical shit that it imposed yeah. on me. Uh, pain is a constant friend. Uh, I've got a high tolerance, but it it gave me gave me the ability to, to look back and say, as unpleasant as that was, it has progressed me to this point. Yeah. And sure. what I do from this moment on is again my choice. Yeah. I, I can I can get upset about it and hate the, the repercussions, or I can say, well, let's work around them. And, yep. and even when uh, the PMO came to see me um, in the, later, the latest years, I had to do my OST in front of the PMO for various reasons that I don't need going into. Um, but even the PMO said he didn't think I was going to pass, but he learned that I, I'd found coping, compensating te- techniques to still achieve the same goal within the parameters of the law but just not the way the force does. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's good. Um, so when did your PTSD symptoms start kicking in? It happened about 2007. What had happened is that we had a young lad who has always been a, a bit of a problem in the world. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, I actually feel sorry for the lad because... He has a chemical intolerance to alcohol, yeah. and the moment he touches it, it just sends him sends him off off the court. Uh, and we were at uh, a nightclub dealing with uh, a call. We'd been called to the nightclub by the bouncers. They had this guy uh, was creating problems, um, and I'd had many many dealings with him during my career at Worry. Uh, he'd been away interstate for a number of a number of years for various reasons which go into his psychological state, which I won't breach his confidence. Um, but anyway, we're at this scene, and uh, he ended up being getting, uh, getting a, a dose of uh, a spray over the face, uh, dealing, dealing with him with the aftercare. Now, this year, lad had, at one stage, he had, at the age of 17, he had 172 charges against him for various crimes of violence. That yeah. was his antecedents. Yeah. Um, uh, so it wasn't a, it wasn't a pleasant character, but uh, I was all set for the physical assault because he he was built like he's built like a brick shit house, he's a big boy, and I was all set and prepared for the physical assaults. I had all my guards up for that, but not for everything. Yeah. And he made a comment that he'd been in uh, he'd been in prison with Kai, the guy that shot me. Yeah. He'd actually been in the same cell with Kai and said that uh, 
when he got out of that Melbourne assessment prison, he was going to get another rifle of the same type and do it again, but do a better job. Yeah. And that's it in a nutshell. Um, I was all set for the physical assault. I wasn't set for the psychological assault. Yeah. yeah. And it got under my skin. Yeah. It got under my skin. And uh, in the space of a very, very sh- few short months, I deteriorated dramatically. Yeah. I hit the booze. I hit the booze, hit the gambling, hit the drugs. Yeah. I, you know, the evil trilogy. Yeah. I fell down the hole. Yeah. And uh, uh, after that followed uh, a number of suicide attempts. Yeah. Uh, because I just couldn't cope with where my mind was. Yeah. Uh, it was a world of hurt. And I felt abandoned by the force because of various things that happened. I felt yeah. abandoned by my friends. Um, and none of which is true. Yeah. But my perceptions yeah, was, yeah. perception was good. When you and this is one of the things with mental injuries, when you are psychologically injured, your brain's not thinking straight. No, no. So and it's very hard to um, uh, work out what's what's, what's factual, reality, what's, what's not, reality, what's, yeah. things like that. Yeah. Now I'm sitting here with this awesome chocolate lab next to me. Yeah, it's a good boy. So I met you. And it was actually quite funny because the blokes were running, you know, having the, the codeine leaks in the yep. town. And I got a message, Ron Fenton, the stubborn old prick, is going to come tonight. <laughs> and I, knew, I, I, I didn't know you at that stage, yep. but I knew who you were. And I was, I was going, oh, awesome, cool. And then I'd known knew you for some time before Yogi come along. And I can still remember when you said, because we'd had Jimmy and Frankie yep. there as assistance dogs, yep. we're going to have another dog come. Yep. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it had to be him. Yeah. Oh, he's been, he's been such a tremendous life-saving impact on my life, and uh, yeah, I, I'm just lucky I've got him. So how how did it come about? You know, what happened was, um, one of my troops, uh, Dave Evans, his mother is a writer, and uh, she interviewed me for a bit of a book that she was doing. And then uh, through her contacts uh, with, the, with the military, because he's a very, very well-known Anzac in the system, yep. um, she actually got in touch with uh, a group called DCD, much to my lack of knowledge. Yep. Um, and then I started to get these messages about, uh, yeah, we might, we might have a dog for you. Uh, really good. Uh, so time progressed. And comes to March 2017, and I'm doing a, a course at the old Spencer Street building. Yep. Um, the forces engage some university professor to investigate what gives members of the police force PTSD. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. And that they're interviewing uh, retired sergeants, uh, current sergeants, retired consuls, current consuls, yeah, getting a, a broad yep. spectrum. Yep. So I'm at this thing and having lunch, and I get a phone call, Ron, you haven't answered your emails. I've been on this course for a few days. I'm not looking at the emails. I'm worrying about this course. Um, and they say, oh, look, uh, we're from DCD, and we have a dog for you. Ah, oh, right. Um, we need you to be here in, in Sydney on Monday. And, of course, excited as I am, I think, cocky accommodation, um, transport, you know, all the yeah, things I've got to do, yeah, yeah. cancel appointments. And they respond, no, your accommodations have been booked. 
your plane flight is waiting at the airport for you. All you have to do is get your ass to the airport, get, get in the plane, and there'll be meet, there'll be someone there to meet you and yep. take care of you for that. Okay, so uh, I got on a plane and went up to uh, Sydney, went bus trip to Bathurst, um, and spent the night in a motel there in Bathurst. Next morning, uh, go out to the prison and uh, meet the DCD team. And uh, the night before, they actually showed me a photo of Yogi, who I fell in love with the moment I saw him. Uh, and the next morning, we're there and they're having a, having a big you know, a big press release of another graduation, of another group of DCD dogs. And uh, so I've gone out and Benny has, Benny the inmate that trained Yogi, has gone away. He's come back. Now, I've never seen Yogi. I didn't get a chance because it was only Wednesday when I got the message. I didn't get a chance to send anything with my scent on it um, to give him some some indication. It was our first ever meeting. And uh, Benny was one in the room, which is probably as far away as that that driveway over there. Um, And he slips the the lead off Yogi and just says uh, F-R-E-E. Can't say it because he he hears it. F-R-E-E, and I just couldn't believe it. Yogi bounded straight across the room. You know, there, there were probably 50 people in there mm-hmm. uh, with the dignitaries and the prison staff and all that sort of thing. He bounded straight across the room, paused on his chest, and just smothered me in kisses. Yeah. And that's it. We've never been apart since. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he just, he must have seen the look in my eyes or whatever, but he knew that he was for me. Um, there were four dogs there, but he knew he was for me, and that's where we stayed, and it's been great ever since. And that night, the very first night, because um, we have a we have a conference every day afterwards uh, to talk about how the night went. And that very first night, um, having been suddenly benched from my existence and thrown up to Sydney, and then to Bathurst, and then to go spend the entire day inside a prison. Yeah. Which is not the most comfortable spot for any copper. Well, that's what I was about to say. Do we see the irony here? Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> uh, but the, to, to spend an entire day and then subsequently four more days inside a prison all day yeah. uh, with these guys that, you know, they've made a mistake, they're paying the price. Yeah. And that's it. Uh, but it was obviously the perfect storm for a night terror. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a new, new state... Yeah. Different building, you know, everything yeah. wrong. Everything, yeah, everything's leading to it. Yeah, so sure enough, during that night, I end up with night terror. And uh, Yogi's in his crate, because they're all crate trained. Yogi detects this night, and I don't know, I mean, I know Benny trained him, but Yogi detected uh, my breathing pattern was fucked, was stuffed. And uh, he got out of his crate, Turned on the light and climbed up on the bed and just slowly woke me up. Now, prior to that, it had been probably seven and a half years since I'd gone without night terror. Yeah. Um, I was having them three to four times a week. Yeah. And those on this site will know that once you have a night terror, you don't go back to sleep. Yeah. You don't want it. Might be another one. No yeah. thanks. Yeah. Uh, but Yogi woke me up. 
just cuddled into me, so to speak, and then he lay with his head on my shoulder, breathing on my throat. Yeah. And I could just feel the warmth of his, his breath on my throat. And uh, for the first time in seven and a half years, I was able to go to sleep. Yeah. Um, and the next morning when I told them about that, they said, well, that's it. You can't separate you two now. You're stuck. <laughs> You're locked. <laughs> and he's been locked that all the time. He, he, he knows what's going on with me all the time. And, of course, with this cancer diagnosis, he's been working bloody hard. Uh, but I've got everything arranged for him. So what the... Um how many pills were you taking a week before you had Yogi? 18 a day. 18 a day. And by pills, I'm talking psych medication. Yeah, yeah. It's stuff. Yeah, for, for major anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, uh, and uh, PTSD, and some other one I keep on forgetting it. Some weird convoluted medical names. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and like, how many are you on psych meds? After Yogi. Within four months of Yogi, no night terrors, no, no meds at all. Yeah. Totally gone. P- pretty powerful dog. Oh, well, the dogs are. Yeah. It's not just Yogi, it's what dogs do. But, you know, basically, the constant dose of oxytocin from having a dog around has replaced every other drug I do. Yeah. I mean, I'm yeah. on lots of tablets now, but that's for, yeah. for the cancer. Uh, but as far as psychotropic medication or psychological repair, haven't needed him for years now. Yeah. Uh, because he's he's the thing that fixes everything. So you cannot cannot underestimate the value of a dog. Yeah. Oh, uh, one way or the other. Absolutely incredible. So we come along and then despite all the not despite that's not the right word, you've gone through, you've been shot, you got thirty seven fragments in the head, you've done all this, you've done all that, and then you cop a diet cancer diagnosis. Yep. So how does that hit you? <laughs> like a ton of bricks, of yeah. course. Um, obviously, uh, suicide was the first first point of call. Yeah. Uh, basically, it was woe is me. Haven't I been through enough? I've, you know, why why is this happening to me? I've done all this, and now you do. You know, you're putting me through this again. Yeah. Um, lots of anger, lots of self blame, lots of doubt, recriminations, and all that sort of thing. Uh, and so the the old black dog jumps off the tr- shoulder and uh, is well and truly screaming in the face. Yep. This is the time. You, you've done enough. You don't have to put up with this anymore. Yep. Now is the time to show them how badly you are hurt. Yep. You know? uh, but um, Yogi um, basically got between, got between the two, got between me and, yep. and the black dog yep. and said, "Buzz off his mind." Yeah. And uh, Suicide Alley lasted probably probably an hour. Yeah. Uh, you know, crying my eyes out, sitting out here where we yeah. are now. Yeah. Uh, crying my eyes out, yogis all over me, etc. And I realised I can't leave him. Yeah. I can't leave him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he depends on me. Uh, and also, he'd be pissed off if I did. Yeah. Um, so I thought, no, it's it's a choice again. Yeah. I can get upset about it or I can fight it. So you're back to the, the ones and those, the binary yep, choices. Uh, absolutely. And all of that. So, um, and like when I first rolled up here today, I, admittedly, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, but, I mean, it's fair to say in the 30, 40 minutes that we chatted before we pressed record, there was pretty much smiles and laughter the whole time oh, yeah. Yeah. because you've now got this sense, I'm not 
I'm not telling this story, but I mean, you're at peace. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I am in the extremely fortunate position. I'm dying. <laughs> extremely fortunate position that I know that the cancer I have, they can't give me any more treatment. There's no more treatments that will work. Yeah. Um, so now the cancer is going to progress and it's going to take me when it takes me. Yeah. But I'm in the fortunate position to know that that's ahead of me. I can make the choice to rail against it and talk about how unfair the world is, but it's not unfair. Everyone dies. Everyone, or no one gets out of this game alive. Yep. I have the beneficial position that I know it's coming. I'm in a physical enough state to be able to prepare myself for it. And I've got the financial resources to, you know, at least not be destitute in the meantime, but I can enjoy the time I have left. I don't know exactly how long I've got. Yep. Uh, doctors don't reckon I'll make it to November. I'm planning on next year. Yep. Uh, but I'm in the position where I can actually do something about it and make sure that the time I have left is filled with excitement and filled with joy and filled with love and filled with laughter. Yeah. Or I can be upset about yeah, it and, 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 deny, and deny the inevitability of it and waste my time and not have the chance to thank my juniors and my seniors and, and my friends and my lovers and all that sort of thing. I'm lucky. I've got the chance to say, hey, guys, I'm going, but you know, I'd like, like yeah. to catch up with you before I go. Yeah. Um, so I'm at I'm total peace with this, absolutely at peace with this. Uh, also being a cop, control freak, yeah. I'm controlling my own death. <laughs> Um, I, I can do it. Yeah, couldn't control my career, so I'll control my death. Um, you know, I mean, I'm in a I'm in a good position, yeah. and, and I am calm with this. And I'm hoping that the fact that I am at this much at peace with it will be maybe a, a, an inspiration for others when they they come to this time, if they come to a time like this, that they can look at it a different way rather than regretting it. Say, well. I've got the time to enjoy it. I'm going to enjoy myself. I don't think there's any doubt you'll have that influence on people. I think that, that's, that, that's a given for me. Now, the, there's a concept, um, again, Joe Donovan posted a while back, and it's a concept I'd never heard of before, the living wake. Yep, yep. And that was fantastic. That was great. It is not, I'm Irish French, so it is an Irish tradition. Uh, and uh, it's basically a roast, so to speak, <laughs> if you want to. But yeah, it's a ch yeah. chance for uh, people that are important in life yeah. uh, to get together. And, yeah. and you know, we all talk about, I wish I'd told him. I wish he knew. How. Well, here's a chance, here's to, a chance yeah. to do it. And moreover, a chance for me to thank thank my subordinates when I was working in Ruby, as we discussed before. You know, These kids put themselves, their lives in my hand, even with me crippled and all that sort of thing, um, and get, gave me the chance to thank them for the trust they showed yeah. in me. Uh, also a chance to have a bit of fun. Uh, you know, they got photos of when I was dressed in Frankenfurt as Frankenfurt and that was all over the, all over the room. Uh, a bit of embarrassment and a bit of stirring. Um, all good fun. Oh, uh, yeah. All, all with the, the kindest possible intentions, I hope. Um, it was a great day. Yeah. It was, and I originally thought maybe we'd get 15, 20 people. I was stunned by the number of people that actually turned up. It was a great afternoon. Yeah. Uh, I stayed till stumps, almost, almost stumps. Um, and we just had fun. Had fun. Mm. So you've flown, was it a Tiger Moth? Yep. 
You so you've flown the Tiger Moth. Oh, I've been a passenger. I've been a passenger. Yeah. You won. Yeah. You jumped out of the plane last week. Jumped out of the plane. Yep, yeah. again. What's uh, zip lining? You're yep, yep. You made zip lining. Yep. What's on the agenda for the uh, first Well, there's, uh, there's a place where you can actually ride a horse for about three hours, and then they cook you a huge bushman's feast, and yeah. then you ride, ride back, so it's at the bush. Yeah. Uh, so that's one. Um there's the, I think they call it static free fall, where, where you're in a wind tunnel. Yes. And you're in, doing in free tunnel. Yep. 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 Uh, so there's that. Uh, whitewater rafting, which I've done before. I want to do it again. Yep. Um, uh, I'm looking at possibly doing another para jump or two. Yep. Take it up a little bit higher, so yeah. a bit more free fall. Blythe <laughs> uh, won't be with them. Um, and, and it's a case of I'm just... Looking through the adventure websites, to, yeah. oh, I did hot air ballooning yeah. a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking through those adventure websites and things that are fun. Yeah. Uh, and taking a couple of friends with every everything yeah. I do, I take a couple of friends with me to let them enjoy it. Um, and basically, I'm filling up my life with fantastic experiences that hopefully I can take with me. Yeah. If I can't, it's not going to matter. Yeah. It's not going to hurt me if, if I can't take them with me. But you're having a red-hot crack it. Yeah, if I can. And, and if I don't achieve everything on my bucket list, well, I'll give yeah. them a red-hot crack. Yeah, you're I'm, having a go. Yeah. Now, I'll, I'll apologise in advance, but this you might get a bit emotional over this one. But hopefully, with all things being equal, you should have a visit from someone pretty special who you haven't met yet. Oh, right. Now that, that tells me lots. <laughs> the, your uh, granddaughter? Oh, yes, my granddaughter. Yeah, yeah, that's... that's uh, that's important. That's really important. My son uh, gave birth to a beautiful little girl in May last year, or May May this year. Uh, unfortunately, coronavirus has yep. stuffed up the world. Yep. Uh, but at this stage, uh, with a lot of friends, Joe Donovan and a few other friends, all pushing, and we're hoping to get him over here in the next couple of months. Yeah. And uh, bring my bring my granddaughter over, uh, just so I can say hello and goodbye at the same time. Okay. Um, pretty special. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, she's pretty and, special. What am she, I she's, 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 you know, that's, my only that's, surviving. It's an enormous, yeah. enormous thing. To, to uh, where are they? Spain or something? In Spain, Barcelona. Yeah. Unfortunately, because of my Sorry. medical condition, I can't go there yeah. because I have to have access to what I need here. Yeah. They haven't got it over there. And with COVID getting yeah. here. No, yeah. I thought I turned that off. Right, so let's go through. Can you give me your five best oh. non-policing experiences? And I mean, you probably think it's even on. But can you narrow it down? Can you narrow it down to five, four or five experiences in your life that you could look back on and go, "Shit, off." Oh yeah. Non-policing. Non-policing. So personal life. Um, the birth of my children. Yeah. Definitely. 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 You can't beat that. The birth of both my boys, both Mark and Ron, um, have been such such an important thing in my life. Um, the first time I did, did free fall. Yeah. First time I did free fall was. That's really, really when good. When was that? Oh, quite 19... 1990? Yeah. Something like that. Yep. Uh, yeah. 
Hang on, it was before Rakushima. Yeah, about then. Yeah. Um, buying my first car. Yeah. yeah What'd you get? 1952 MGTD, which I still own. Yeah. Yeah, still got it. It's huh. almost almost fully restored there. Um, so we're trying to get it up on the road before I go. Yeah, go, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Get, so I can give it a long yeah. spin. I, I bought that was my very first car. Yeah, that's my very first car. And in fact, at the academy, uh, the the, uh, the recruits used to comment about, you know, I think someone said, oh, Richard Gear. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> beautiful red 1952 MGTD. Uh, yeah, but that's a material thing. Um, really good points. It's sort of it's not an instance; it's a progressive instance. Is being able to recover and get back to get yeah, to where yeah. I am now. Yeah, nice. Yeah, nice. the recover, the, the, the repair of everything coming together. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's probably been been the best thing in my life. That my body has done enough to. Let me enjoy my life, no matter how badly damaged it is. Yeah. Uh, I've been able to get back and, and, and be involved with people and you know, have a little bit of influence here and there uh, because you know, every contact leaves a trace. Yeah. And uh, you just being able to meet the people I've met. You know, I talk about the amazing experiences I've had in my life, but moreover, I've met some amazing people. Yeah. Um, both military and police. I, there are bosses in the army that I, I, I've tried to emulate as a, as a war officer. Um, just the experience of life, and, and this is all going back to what we talking about with binary, you know, binary life is choice. Tomorrow, there's always a chance that tomorrow will be better. Yeah, yeah. Hope. Yeah. Hope is important to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I can't do anything about my physical state, but I can hope for a good day tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, and even in the depths of depths of depression and PTSD and all that sort of thing, if you can hang on to hope that as bad as it's been up till now, and, and there's no doubt there's, you know, if past performance is the indication of future performance, there's no doubt there's, there's right to feel somewhat um, tenuous or uh, reticent about what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. But the fact of the matter is, there's always hope. The, the, the word hope is vastly underrated. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Vastly. And uh, look, I, I've met some brilliant people and been involved in some brilliant organisations um, that have supported me and been gracious and kind enough to, to help me. But I've just been fortunate that I've been able to, thanks to my family, been able to realise that it is what it is, as we yeah. both agree yeah. on. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and it's entirely up to you to make your choice. Do you want to be happy or do you want to be sad? Yeah. And I want to be happy. Yeah. And I can influence that by my actions. Yeah. We're all the result of our actions and our decisions, and I can influence every day of my, my, the future of my life by making the right decision. Yeah. If in hindsight that decision turns out to be wrong, as long as I made it with the best possible intentions, yeah. with all the knowledge I had at that time, at that time then it's an okay decision. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, that's, yeah, absolutely agree 100% with that. With what you've got before you at that time, mm. you make a decision that's yep. what you think's the best. And you accept accountability for it, whichever way and it goes. Put your hand up. Yep. 
I know four or five police experiences that have been great. Oh. <laughs> On the first day, first day back lights and bells after the uh, when I got back to the street. Yeah. Um, there was a the Werribee Cup, and uh, Werribee Cup had behaved like the Werribee Cup does. Yeah. Yeah. Bloodbath time. <laughs> and uh, it turned out that one of our members was glassed uh, at the uh, at the railway hotel. And I remember in a brawler, the old big brawler, yeah, yeah, yeah. lights and bells down down uh, down the road. You, know, you can't get too fast with a brawler. But still lights and bells down to the hotel to um, to deal with it. And that was the first lights and bells I had since I returned to the street. Um, yeah, I, I yeah, love I, this. I love this. Yeah. Uh, definitely uh, one of the highlights yeah. of my job. Um being allowed to go back to the street, yeah. that was really, really important. Um, the privilege I got uh, when I was in the academy, they allowed me with every squad to give a presentation about my shooting. Yeah. Uh, and the ramifications and implications of that that have occurred since then, I'm hearing from my friends and how they remember that that lecture specifically. Um, I was... It was one, one lecture was given to every single squad two mm-hmm. weeks before they graduated. And it was basically a reality check. And basically saying... Oh, huge. Yeah, huge. Your, your uniform is not bulletproof and uh, you can get injured in this job. And I, I think um, I was not fortunate enough to be mm-hmm. exposed to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I distinctly remember walking out of City Patrol Group my first day out into the street and I just thought the world stopped and looked at me. In reality, no one gave a no, no one gave a shit. Just another couple wearing proper uniform. Yeah, yeah. But to have, you know, because everything go through the academy, you get told stories, you watch mm. videos, this, that, and the next thing. But to have an actual member standing in front of you that, that had been shot um, through no fault of their own, but there are people out there that want to cause great harm, magnificent reality check. Oh, and you need it because at that stage, at the 17-week stage, you are bulletproof. Yeah. Oh, the yeah. world cannot, you know, you yeah. are about to change the world. Um, so, yeah, and they gave me that opportunity to, to present to every single squad. Uh, and, in fact, I like to think it was actually the formation, it was the basis of the formation of OST yeah. because that's when we started to have le- you know, lectures about reality and yeah. how to do things, and OST was created soon thereafter. Um so that was that was that was an honour. I was given it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Would have kept on doing it apart from uh, the way the world turned out. Um, the shooting itself. Yeah. The shooting itself was obviously a watershed moment in my life. Yeah. And a watershed moment in the lives of many many others. But in hindsight, looking at it as a whole, it was beneficial for me. Yeah. Um, as we discussed before, I wouldn't change it for the sure. I get rid of the pain of the drop of a hat. Yeah. But what it actually did to me, um, the way in which it changed me as a person, uh, changed my thought process, uh, changed my attitude towards life. Uh, I wouldn't change it for the world. I, you know, the shooting was, in fact, probably one of the better parts of my life, um, which is weird. And it's I mean, weird, but I, I think it's one of those situations that people really need to have 
lived mm. to really fully understand what you're what you're saying. I, I get it to a degree. Yeah, you would. Yeah, I mean, because I, like I'm the same with my diagnosis. But most of the guys in K9 will get. They, they, they've all, we've all been damaged. Mm. We've all had some huge or repeated trauma that's that's hurt us, and we're result. We we are a result of that now. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure all the guys and girls in K9 will will be able to take care. Yeah, I can see what he's saying here. Um, it, ha- it has had a tremendous and positive influence on my life. I, I actually think I'm a better man now as a result of the shooting than, yeah. than I was beforehand. Do you ever spend any time um, thinking about what life would have been like if you weren't shot? No. That's, no. that's way in the past. Yeah, not only is it in the past, it's an impossible concept. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah look, I was... Because of the way the force was in those days, I was destined for officer rank yeah. um, in the qualifications, etc. I was bound to be an officer, or looking at being an officer and all that sort of thing. Uh, but this just changed, you know, yeah. changed the goalpost totally. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's not the life I had, and I can't change that. So thinking about it is just a waste of time. Yeah. I've got more important things yeah. to yeah. do right now than worry about you regrets know. of what could have been. You've got a pretty serious bucket list to fulfil. Yeah, yeah. And worrying about what could have been, oh, you know, how long's a piece of trick? Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas I've got so much fun and so much enjoyment. You know, I'm almost euphoric at the moment. Yeah. Uh, because I can see the path ahead of me. It's still indistinct in many regards. Yeah. But there's a clear and defined direction. Uh, I'm in control of where I go. There is absolutely nothing for me to to be sad about. Yeah. Um, literally nothing for me to be sad about, apart from the fact that I'm running out of time. But we're all going to run out of time. time. Yeah. No one gets out of this game alive. And I, I, I say you do look healthy. Oh, I, I feel a lot healthier than I physically am. Yeah. Yeah. But that's if you take out the knowledge. Yeah. So when I again when I walked in here today, I looked at my phone. Look healthy, mm, yeah. And then when you started sort of saying how you know, healthy you are, and I'm, I'm sitting there going, well, well, you're not bullshitting me because you do genuinely look very much at peace with the world. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 that's awesome. That's I, awesome. I, I, and uh, you know, when people are approaching this time of life, have a think about what I've done, and I continue. It beats the heck out of sitting in the lounge chair feeling sorry for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm having an absolute ball. Yeah. Uh, and I'm having a ball in such regard that I wouldn't be able to have if I wasn't in this position. Yeah. Yeah. It's been it's been actually cathartic to have yeah. to have this. And uh, I'm young enough young enough and fit enough to not not deteriorate really badly. Yeah. Uh, but when this when when the cancer takes its hit, it will knock me down very quickly. Yeah. Uh, which again is beneficial because I don't have to suffer. Yeah. You know, yeah. As long as we can keep the pain away, that's good enough for me. I think it's just an extraordinary attitude. But it, like I'll go back to what I was when I was first told by you message me like Ronnie's coming. He's a stubborn old prick. <laughs> um, but I, I think for me certainly, and like everyone I've spoken to just talks about you as just 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 resilient, and um, you know. You, what you've been through in your life and yet here we are sitting out with the wind chimes going and you look healthy you're smiling and all that like so many other people would have just sort of melted into a corner and 
life sucks kind of attitude. But oh, I give it to you, um, no, thanks, mate. Mate, I, I, uh, I feel very grateful to be able to be sitting here for an hour thirty nine and fifty seconds at the moment talking oh, no. on tape. But you know, the previous forty minutes we did before it and all the conversations we've had in the past, I. I very grateful you've exposed me to a lot of information that um, that otherwise I would have known. Like I'm still trying to wrap my head around you knowing, you know, like I, I just had this thought in my head that when you were shot, you were out. Mm. Mm. And then you tell me, oh, no, I wasn't. I'm like, oh, hang on. I'm trying to get my head around this yeah. because, I mean, I knew early on when we were talking about the 37 fragments in mm. your head and do your buzz when you go through the airport and <laughs> things like that. Yeah. That so. Um, mate, thank you, thank you so much. Um, some people are going to get enormous, enormous information out of you know your, um, you know, you allowing us to listen to your story. I mean, it's fantastic. Mate, thank you very much for uh, for calling me and, and giving me the opportunity to say goodbye to the guys and the girls, guys and girls, yeah. all over the world. Um, you know, my achievements are on. I'm proud of what I did in the force. I'm proud of what I did in the army. Uh, but it's time now to step out and and just find out what the next adventure is. And I'm I'm at peace with that. And and I'm wrapped to have been included in groups like Code Nine and other groups. And and just just the people have had given me the chance to express what I feel. So yeah. I'm really thank that. Thanks for that, mate. Anytime. And um, good luck with the bucket list. <laughs> No worries. See you later, guys. Take care. I'll be back.